0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Activists pressure banks to stop funding a destructive form of coal mining.
1: All of the major U.S. banks and most of the major European banks, too, were lending these mining companies the money that they needed to expand mines. So it became clear to us that if we could ask banks not to lend that money, we could cut off a really important component that was going into growing mountaintop removal mining.
0: Some banks, but not all, agree. Also, vast American chestnut forests once provided employment and timber.
2: The logs provided fencing to keep cattle out of their gardens, and then lumber from cradle to grave. People would be rocked awake in a chestnut cradle and buried in a chestnut coffin.
0: A blight wiped out the chestnuts, but they may be coming back. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt,
0: smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. New federal rules on global warming emissions from existing coal-fired power plants could prove one of the most lasting legacies of President Obama. Congressional reluctance to enact carbon control legislation has caused the president to act through regulation, such as tightened fuel efficiency standards for vehicles. The administration's latest national climate assessment, released on May 6, stresses the urgency of action. Climate change is here, now, and threatens our food, water, and national security. And the president made a point of underlining that security issue to America's elite Army graduates at West Point on May 28th. He says the nation needs to work through international law, cooperating with allies to face all threats.
4: That spirit of cooperation needs to energize the global effort to combat climate change. A creeping national security crisis that will help shape your time in uniform as we are called on to respond to refugee flows and natural disasters and conflicts over water and food, which is why next year I intend to make sure America is out front in putting together a global framework to preserve our planet.
0: Next year, delegates will meet in Paris for crucial negotiations aimed at strengthening the U.N. treaty to control carbon emissions. Today, Europe has led the way towards a worldwide agreement and adopted mandatory limits on global warming gases within its own borders, while the U.S. has dragged its feet and opted out of the Kyoto Protocol. But in the recent European Parliament elections, citizens expressed deep frustration with the EU and its institutions, voting in vastly increased numbers for fringe parties often hostile to central control and regulation. This could affect the European approach in the upcoming climate talks. So we called Wendell Trio, he's director of Climate Action Network in Europe, to see what he thinks.
5: Europe has engaged itself on a process to develop new climate and energy legislation for the period after 2020. That process will continue irrespective of having more Eurosceptics in the European Parliament because the process has been developed.
0: It can't be stopped anymore. Now, the world will be meeting next year in Paris for the international climate negotiations. What do you expect from the EU at those talks, given the mood that's been set by this election? In general, the mood in Europe
5: is at the moment not extremely positive. Europe feels in many ways that they are a bit isolated in terms of climate action and that other countries are doing far less than what they are doing. So I think what we actually would need in Europe is a kind of a new revival of real ambition because without a European leadership role, it would be very hard to come to a real deal in Paris
0: There are a number of regulations that uh, the Obama administration is working on uh, regarding climate. How important is success in getting those regulations forward in the United States uh, to the negotiations in Paris?
5: I think if we can see these new regulations being supported, I think um, it will show to to the rest of the world, that President Obama is really serious. I mean, one of those regulations is about setting emission performance standards for power plants. Um, That is something that Europe doesn't have. So it would also be setting some kind of an example for Europe, and it might be really um, a tool that we could use, again, as European civil society to point to our leaders, look, the President of the United States is ready to move forward in the United States, and we need to be able to do the same in Europe.
0: What are your feelings now about the prospects for next year in Paris, given the recent elections uh, in Europe uh, and the other things that we've talked about?
5: Well, it's really a crucial opportunity for the world to do something. But at the moment, the pace of the negotiations and the pace of the preparations of countries to really come with proposals are way too slow. I mean, we really need to see more than what is happening now. So unless countries are accelerating their preparations, it might be difficult to get to the right kind of agreement in Paris.
0: Wendell Trios, Director of Climate Action Network in Europe. Thanks so much, Wendell. Okay, thank you. For his part, President Obama seems to be doing his best to galvanize climate action from the United States, and he argues that America must be a true leader.
4: You see... American influence is always stronger when we lead by example. We can't exempt ourselves from the rules that apply to everybody else. We can't call on others to make commitments to combat climate change if a whole lot of our political leaders deny that it's taken place.
0: The June 2nd release of proposed EPA rules for existing power plants may convince the Europeans and other major carbon emitters that the U.S. is finally serious about imposing politically unpopular limits on global warming gases. As global warming advances, basic physics tells us that increasingly torrential rains increase the likelihood of devastating landslides, such as those that recently struck the Balkans and earlier this year wiped out a community in Oso in Washington State. And in mountainous areas prone to landslides, it can be tough to strike a balance between the rights of people to live in these beautiful but risky places and their safety. Reporter Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix visited a wild area in Washington where officials made a controversial move to keep citizens out of harm's way.
6: In their spare time, Dan McShane and John Thompson like to bushwhack through thick forests.
7: So we go down there, we might pull able to see back back.
6: Until place. they arrive suddenly at cliffs. Cliffs that are formed when massive amounts of earth slide off mountainsides. Wow! We step out of the woods and look down the bare face of a landslide. 500 feet or so below us, Canyon Creek rushes along on its way to meet the Nooksack River. These geologists have let me tag along with them high into the mountains near Mount Baker to check out two landslides that have cost Whatcom County millions of dollars and a lot of headaches. McShane shimmies out along a log wedged between two sides of the ravine to get a better view. My stomach lurches a little bit when he tells me to follow him.
3: I have a comfort level that might be a little warped.
6: I'm actually thinking you're just part billy goat. I'm afraid of heights, actually. I clutch my microphone and clamber across after the crazy geologist. Oh, my gosh. Rocks skittering away down the cliff below me. Canyon Creek is a steep, fast-flowing tributary of the Nooksack River. We're about 30 miles east of Bellingham in the North Cascades. There are actually two active landslides here, one on either side of the creek. McShane and Thompson explain.
3: So we're on the side of Canyon Creek on the lower part of the Jim Creek landslide and we're looking across at little Baldy slide.
7: What Bald, do you call Bald Mountain? Bald Mountain Slide. That's Bald Mountain in the far distance. And so just kind of this somewhat cupped face that we're looking at is where the slide originates or where the head of it is.
6: <clears throat>
7: and then the toe reaches all the way down to the stream.
6: So we're standing basically on like if you think of the landslides as the gate that close and block this river we're standing on one one gate of this river right
3: yeah that's a good descriptor the pinch points as these because they're both going coming at each other toward the river in a way the worst scenario would be that you'd have a pretty big movement on one or the other that would cause the river to be dammed
6: and that's exactly what happened here in 1989 these landslides blocked canyon creek the water built up behind the debris, and then it burst through. It swept away four homes downstream. No one was hurt.
2: Some of the reports that the locals gave was it got very quiet for hours before, for example. All of a sudden, the stream really dropped.
6: Rick Benson's house wasn't harmed by the flooding, but he's lived in the community for more than 15 years and knows people who lost homes. He says they were lucky to realize that the river had almost stopped flowing, a key sign that things were backed up upstream and that a big flood was coming.
2: And sure enough, three or four hours later is when the deluge came through and washed everything out.
6: That landslide and several others that followed it got Whatcom County's attention. First, the county built a levee in 1994 to deal with the flood risk but it developed structural problems that were going to cost the county more than a million dollars to fix. It was also harmful to the salmon that used the creek. Whatcom County started looking at other options. The council concluded that people shouldn't be living in the flood zone below the landslides. So for the past decade or so, Whatcom County has bought out 31 properties along Canyon Creek. It paid for the buyout with some county money, some federal money from FEMA, and some from the Whatcom Land Trust— all told, the buyout cost more than $1.6 million. Rick Benson thinks the county made a good call.
2: I think moving the homes and protecting people and property where they could, I thought it was the right idea. But it all depend on who you talked to. In general, I thought it was, it was well accepted, and was, the vast majority of the lot owners along the creek did sell their lots. One
6: property owner who opposed the buyout but still took the money declined to be interviewed for this story. Dan McShane, the geologist you heard from earlier, was actually serving on the county council at the time of the buyout decision. He played a key role in convincing the council that letting people continue living there was not an option.
3: I mean, I use terms like it would be immoral because in my mind it was. Uh, and this isn't property rights anymore. This is about life and death. And when you get to that level, I think people react much differently.
6: Since the devastating Oso landslide killed more than 40 people in Snohomish County earlier this spring, conversations about property rights versus government authority have taken on a new weight. For some people, owning land is a symbol of freedom. People should be able to do whatever they want on their property, even if it's in a dangerous area. The question is, who is responsible when disaster strikes? Ken Mann serves on the Whatcom County Council now. He says if he'd been in office at the time of the buyout decision, he would have voted against it. It's not for me to give out charity on behalf of the people of Whatcom County. We should not be in the business of foolproofing and disaster-proofing the world. Let people have their freedom, do what they want on their property, and give them the
8: responsibility to deal with the consequences.
6: Mann believes people need to do their homework before they buy. But the county should help buyers get the best information about the potential risks associated with their property. The government should be in the business of sharing information. I know in the world of GIS, there's geographic information systems. There is a ton we could be doing, and we're limited by the number of staff and resources that we have, but I'd like to look at that. The technology is there, but it's expensive, and most counties are just beginning to incorporate it. Right now, only 22 percent of Washington state has been mapped using LIDAR technology. LIDAR imagery cuts through the tree layer to show where old landslides have occurred. The Washington congressional delegation is urging federal lawmakers to better fund landslide hazard mapping. It's impossible to know how the residents of Steelhead Drive in Oso would have responded had they had more information about their landslide risk or been given the option to take a buyout. In Whatcom County, the buyout wasn't a quick or easy process. But now there are 31 fewer households in harm's way. I'm Ashley Ahern in Glacier, Washington.
0: Ashley Ahern reports for the public media collaborative EarthFence. Coming up, new hope for the American chestnut and the Appalachian mountaintops devastated by mining. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The coal industry is under fire in the U.S. from several directions, ranging from calls to pull investments from fossil fuels to proposed federal regulations to limit global warming emissions from power plants. And now, in the face of pressure from activists, banks have stepped into the fray. Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase are among major banks that have pledged to stop lending to finance the ecologically destructive mining technique known as mountaintop removal. The activists include the Rainforest Action Network, and as their campaigner Amanda Starbuck explains, mountaintop removal has devastated Appalachia for years.
1: Mountaintop removal, coal mining, is one of the most destructive forms of coal mining that It's practiced in the United States, and it mostly takes place in Appalachia, in the southeast of the U.S. The general topography in that region is rolling peaks, high tops, deep valleys. You can stand on top of a viewpoint and these go on as far as the eye can see. It's really quite beautiful. But when this type of coal mining takes place, the coal company will first of all come along and clear-cut all the forests off the top of the mountains. And these are the most biodiverse forests in the United States. So right there, there's a huge ecosystem loss. Next, they will lay explosives and blast away the top of the mountains the reason that they do that is to expose these thin, narrow seams of coal, and that coal then gets transported off for use in coal-fired power plants.
0: Now, what happens next in this process?
1: Well, the next bit is uh, in many ways as horrific as the removal of the peaks themselves. All the rubble that's left, so this is these are rocks that are not coal, and that contains things like heavy metals, really toxic substances like arsenic and mercury, this gets swept off the new top of the mountain, which can be 200 or 500 feet lower than once was, into the neighboring valley. So effectively, where you once had high peaks and low valleys, you have a more leveled out surface. And instead of beautiful forests and streams, it's exposed rubble and waste.
0: So Rainforest Action decided to work on this a few years ago. Why did you decide to go after the banks that fund mountaintop removal rather than go after the coal companies themselves?
1: We decided to focus on banks because banks have a lot of options where they invest their money. And we've been tracking where the mountaintop removal mining companies get their financing from. And through some fairly straightforward research, we discovered that all of the major US banks and most of the major European banks, too, were lending these mining companies the money that they needed to expand mines buy the machinery and continue to grow this practice So it became clear to us that if we could ask banks not to lend that money, we could cut off a really important component that was going into growing mountaintop removal mining.
0: Now, a number of major banks have agreed to stop funding coal companies that engage in mountaintop removal. Which banks have signed on?
1: Most recently, um, two of the largest U.S. banks, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase, have stopped doing business with the biggest mountaintop removal coal mining companies. And they've been joined by a couple of the largest European banks, Royal Bank of Scotland and BNP Paribas, a French bank, which is also in the States as Bank of the West.
0: Who are the big players that are still supporting mountaintop removal?
1: So we still have a ways to go. and There are still a number of US banks that are continuing to loan to this sector, in particular um, PNC Bank, also Citibank and Morgan Stanley. But Barclays Bank, which is a London-based bank, is the largest financer of mountaintop removal. So we're calling on Barclays to follow their competitors and stop funding mountaintop removal.
0: Now, why would banks agree to stop funding mountaintop removal? Um, They see this as a moral issue or good business?
1: Now, over the last 10 years we've noticed that banks are increasingly sensitive to environmental issues. And there's a number of reasons that people that work at banks, they're just like us. They have families, they care about the impact of their work and what that means for future generations. So there's a part of wanting to do the right thing there. But at the same time, um, banks are fundamentally tasked with maximizing profits and making money. And anyone that's taking a hard look at the coal industry right now would be really concerned about their ability to continue to turn profits. Um, we're burning less coal in the United States, so there's less business for the industry. But also we're starting to see that the government is really tightening up on regulating this industry. So the liability risk for mountaintop removal coal mining companies is is looking pretty bad right now. I think one more critically important factor is that there's been a huge upswelling of grassroots power of people power speaking out about mountaintop removal and saying this is immoral it can't continue Um, we've seen tens of thousands of people in Appalachia stand up and speak out rally draw attention to this issue and we've seen a huge swell of public pressure on the banks to get away from this as well
7: by
0: the way rainforest action well from your name we would think that you'd be involved in places like Central Africa and the Amazon why mountaintop removal
1: Well, that's right. (laughs) That's such a good question. So Rainforest Action Network fundamentally exists to protect forests and forest inhabitants. And for 30 years, we've done a lot of work focused on forest protection. But about 15 years ago, we had the realisation that we could protect all the acres of rainforests that were possible to protect. But if we didn't solve climate change, ultimately those forests were not going to survive So if your concern is rainforests or really whatever your environmental issue is, addressing climate change is absolutely a core component of winning that fight. And we know that if we're going to address climate change, we need to do two things. One of them is to address the most polluting forms of energy and to stop things like mountaintop removal mining or the build-out of fossil fuel export infrastructure. And at the same time, we need a huge growth in our clean, renewable energy sector So moving forward, we're challenging everyone, that's banks and that's energy generators, to shift to clean, renewable energy, and we're very committed to that vision.
0: Amanda Starbuck is the Energy and Finance Director for Rainforest Action Network. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Amanda.
1: Thank you for inviting me onto the show.
0: We called up the banks, Ms. Starbuck named as the holdouts. Barclays corporate spokesman, Mark Lane, wrote in part that We have not provided finance to any entity for the specific purpose of mountaintop removal. We've posted Barclays' full comments at our website, LOE.org. A spokeswoman for PNC Bank said they don't discuss or comment on their actions with third parties. And by our air date, we had had no response from Citibank or Morgan Stanley. Under a spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands. The smith, a mighty man is he with large and sinewy hands. So begins the classic poem written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1839. But if Longfellow were alive today, he would be hard-pressed to find any immense chestnut trees in his hometown of Cambridge, Massachusetts. The mighty American chestnuts that once made up nearly a quarter of the eastern forests in the U.S. are now all but gone, thanks to a blight inadvertently imported from Asia in the early 1900s. But now botanists are working to bring back the American chestnut by breeding in resistance to the Asian blight. And nowhere is their work more anticipated than in the hills of Appalachia deforested in the quest for coal. Reporter Jonna McCone has our story.
9: Thick stands of tall, regal chestnut trees, sometimes called the Redwoods of the East, once dominated the forests of the eastern United States. Michael French is a forester with the American Chestnut Foundation.
8: The old-timers used to say that when the chestnuts were in bloom in June and July, it looked like the ridge tops were covered with snow because of all of the chestnut flowers.
9: These days, it looks very different. Not only are the chestnuts gone, but from where I'm standing on a mountaintop in Dickinson County, Virginia, the rolling green mountains that stretch into the distance also bear the scars of a history of coal mining. And you can hear the next peak over being torn apart for coal.
10: We have some active mountaintop removal just on the next ridge over.
9: Nathan Hall is reforestation coordinator for Green Forest Work, a nonprofit that helps restore former coal mines by planting hardwood trees.
10: So there's rock trucks dumping out big loads of what they call overburden. That's it falling down the mountain right there. That's a big chunk of a mountain sliding down.
9: Across central Appalachia, nearly three-quarters of a million acres of mountains have been strip-mined for coal. That's an area larger than the state of Rhode Island. Underground mining started here around the Industrial Revolution, but it wasn't until the 1930s that surface mining became widespread. That process strips everything off the surface of a mountain, using explosives and heavy equipment to access the coal underground. Dave Fisher from Kentucky is a farmer and small business owner who's worked in coal mining for much of his life.
11: Coal has fed my family. Coal has, has fed generations of my people. You know, all my uncles are coal miners. My grandfather was a coal miner. His grandfather was a coal miner. I mean, it, and it's just generational. That's what we do. That's who we are around here.
9: He's seen firsthand the way mining changes the landscape.
11: You would have huge tracks of land that that all the dirt and rock and everything, trees and everything removed, and it was flattened out. You're talking quarter acre wide, a mile or two long of just big open fields.
9: Fisher says what's not coal is just in the way.
11: Anything over top of your coal, they call it spoil, because it, it spoils your coal.
9: As environmental awareness grew in the 1970s, several key laws were passed including the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act, or SMACRA, the law forced coal companies to fund the cleanup of abandoned mines and the reclamation of active mine sites. Al Whitehouse, Director of Reclamation at the Office of Surface Mining, or OSM, says early efforts didn't consider restoring the ecosystem.
8: OSM and SMACRA had the belief that uh, a surface mine, when reclaimed, should be smooth as the baby's bottom, as it were, and that compacts it, and it wasn't the kind of land that was really the best for forests.
9: Whitehouse says the science and policy of restoration has improved. Today, mountains must be returned to their approximate original contour and fit a designated post-mining land use, but it's up to landowners to decide how the land is used after it's mined.
8: So the state has a role to make sure that the land capability is back, but has no role in dictating what kind of uh, economic interest the landowner pursues. I mean, that's private business. If an old guy wants to raise dairy cows and wants a pasture, then that's certainly one of the acceptable post-mining land uses, and if that's what he wants, that's what he'll have.
9: At the Dickinson County site, The post-mining land use was hay and pasture land. Nathan Hall from Green Forest Works looks out at the old mine.
10: Nowadays, they're using a better seed mix than they used to, but for years and years, they would intentionally seed out a lot of what we see on this site, which is like Chinese lesbodeza and European fescue and various things that don't belong here. That's why we have this... Sort of alien environment on most of these sites, almost looks like it 's been kind of painted green on those lower areas.
9: Kentucky business owner Dave Fisher says coal companies wanted to reclaim the land as quickly and cheaply as possible.
11: They just wanted the dirt to stay in place for five years, so they say, well we've done our part there's a the hillside back, and it 's yours.
9: Restoration efforts didn 't make use of native plants. And fail to understand the historical land uses and culture of rural residents.
11: When you look at a place that's undisturbed in this area, the plethora of wildlife and, and the different nut trees and the different essential plants that, that we have here. At one time, people made their living from just going and collecting ginseng and yellow root and blood root, and, and none of that is ever put back on the mine land very seldom is any of the hardwood put back.
9: But hardwood plantings are increasing, thanks to the efforts of universities, environmental groups, and landowners. Now some are hoping to restore former mines using native species, including the American chestnut. Fred Hibbard is chief scientist with the American Chestnut Foundation. He says the chestnut tree was once a staple of life for people across Appalachia.
2: The Lods provided fencing to keep cattle out of their gardens, and then lumber from cradle to grave. People would be rocked awake in a chestnut cradle and buried in in a chestnut coffin, live in a chestnut house shingled with chestnut bark.
9: Once some 4 billion chestnut trees blanketed the eastern U.S., but by the end of the 20th century, the tree was nearly extinct. An Asian fungus was to blame. In the early 1900s, Gardens full of exotic and ornamental species were all the rage. With imported plants came pests and fungus, including Cryphonectria parasitica, likely brought over on Asian nursery stock. Within 30 years, the fungus spread from Maine to Louisiana, killing nearly every towering and defenseless American chestnut in its path. Though some American chestnuts survived for a few years before succumbing to the blight, they all but disappeared from their range. As early as the 30s, scientists were working to bring the tree back from the blight, but it wasn't until the 1980s that scientists started backcrossing the American chestnut with the Chinese chestnut, a tree that coexisted with the blight for a millennia. Using the Chinese tree's resistance to the fungus, they hoped to breed an American tree that can survive the blight. Again, Fred Hibbard.
2: The only thing you want from the Chinese chestnut is the blight resistance where you want to retain all the other characteristics of the American chestnut other than its susceptibility to blight. And and you essentially want to throw out everything in the Chinese chestnut other than its resistance.
9: That's because the Chinese tree is squat like an apple tree rather than towering and straight like the American tree. The backcross chestnuts at the American Chestnut Foundation Research Farm in Meadowview, Virginia, are essentially 1516th American and one sixteenth Chinese. Pathologist Laura Georgie is introducing the fungus to trees that contain a mix of Chinese and American genes. She wants to determine the most disease-resistant individuals. So this is
8: where they were inoculated. We had two different strains that were inoculated of blight fungus. The lower is the more severe strain. The upper is the less severe. What we have here, the, the lower site is a A lot of dead tissue. The bark is sunken here. There's orange and that's the fungus.
9: Up on top here, this is a little bit better looking. Using trees bred at the farm, scientists are planting what they expect are blight resistant seeds and saplings on former and active mines. Again, Michael French.
8: When you look at the range of the coal fields and the range of American chestnut, the two overlap almost perfectly. So If we can establish little founder populations all throughout chestnuts' range on surface mines, you know, it may help us to reach forests that we might not otherwise be able to plant in.
9: So far, tens of thousands of Chinese-American chestnuts have been planted. Back at the Dickinson County mine site, Michael French and Nathan Hall lead the way along a flat, barren-looking ridgeline to check on a recent planting.
8: Let's walk up here, actually. I'd like to take a look at some of my chestnuts. I just wanted to see how they're doing now that they're leafed out.
9: The men stopped to admire a small sapling.
8: Isn't it beautiful? It's almost two feet tall and only three months old. What do you think?
10: That's from seed?
8: Yeah, from seed. Yeah, it's nice. There's a good one right there, too.
9: They hope the chestnut population becomes self-sustaining.
8: So by mixing them in there with northern red oak, yellow poplar, sugar maple, all of these other species, we'll be able to see... Can the American chestnuts outcompete the other species to where they're able to flower and produce seed for squirrels, turkey, blue jay deer, so that natural processes can continue um, evolution, you know, spreading the seed to other areas?
9: Early data suggests that well over 80% of the chestnut trees are surviving. In a few years, scientists expect the chestnuts will start producing seeds to grow a second generation of trees. Nathan Hall looks at these mountains and sees unrealized potential.
10: As somebody that grew up here and who's, most of my friends still live here, I see every day the tremendous need for physical work for people to be engaged in, not only for the, the money aspect, but also to give people something to do and a sense of cultural identity. Because as the coal mining is moving away from this area and moving out west to Montana and Wyoming, we're left with a, a big question of what we do. To me, there's a big opportunity to get people back to work doing restoration and remediation of these lands.
9: That could mean opportunities for jobs in tree planting, ecotourism, growing nut and fruit orchards, and even biofuel crops on old mines.
10: You don't have anywhere near the the economic potential for the region for these areas that are just covered in kind of a blanket of non-native species.
9: Dave Fisher is looking to the future as well. He recently started a farm and wants to install solar panels on a former mine.
11: It's a huge burden upon the people that's left here after the coal's gone. What are we going to do with this? It's something that we really need to address.
9: The struggle over the costs and spoils of coal production is as deeply rooted in the region's history as its small towns scattered through the lush hillsides. And the chestnut is part of that history. Reforesting former coal mines with native species is a long-term investment that could eventually mean the snowy white flowers of the American chestnut once more carpet the mountains throughout the eastern U.S. For Living on Earth, I'm Jonna McCullough.
0: an odyssey to photograph some of the world's oldest organisms. That's right ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection
3: of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental
0: change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time now to dive beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra, publisher of Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org, and dailyclimate.org, who joins us on the line from Conyers, Georgia.
7: Hi there, Peter. Well, hi, Steve. We're going to go a little long on archaeology this week. Edward Wong, who reports for the New York Times on China, had a piece on one of the most unlikely victims of China's awful pollution problems, and those victims are its centuries-old statues. Giant Buddhas, even the famous terracotta soldiers, are being grimed and corroded by industrial smoke. But Chinese authorities have launched a two-pronged attack to save them, both restoring and cleaning the relics, and also limiting the nearby pollution sources that are threatening to destroy them.
0: Now, I think I know the answer to this, but uh, just what are those sources?
7: Well, there are three main sources, and those would be coal, coal, and more coal. The coal from nearby mines, from factories, power plants, and from the coal cook stove still used in many Chinese homes. The burnt coal ultimately creates sulfuric acid, which can then fall as acid rain. And the acid rain and a layer of grime from the air pollution can eat away at the monuments and statues, the majority of which are made of sandstone.
0: Easily erodible and soft sandstone. So um, what else do you have in the way of eco-archaeology?
7: Well, eco-archaeology, try saying that three times fast. We've got another story from the wonderful publication High Country News. If you're not familiar with High Country News, it's kind of the New Yorker for people who live above the 7,000-foot line out west. Native American artifacts gathered from museum collections in the 19th century and early 20th century were routinely coated with very crude and dangerous preservatives and pesticides. High Country News reporter Joaquin Palomino said that in order to protect these relics from rats and other pests, the museums would coat them with stuff like arsenic, cadmium, mercury, and later on they used gasoline and DDT.
0: And of course there's the compelling argument that these things belong to the tribes, not to museums in the first place.
7: Well, absolutely. And places like Harvard's Peabody Museum recognized that fact. They were helped along by a little encouragement from a federal law saying that the museums had to return the artifacts. Museums are returning them to the tribes, but they're returning them with a little bit of poison coating. There are some antiquities experts that say without the toxic treatment long ago, the relics would have crumbled into dust. But it seems we've righted the wrong of plundered Native American relics by returning them poisoned ones instead.
0: Okay, so we're looking back. How about the history calendar? What do you see there this week?
7: Well, I've got two historic accidents involving dams. 125 years ago this past week, there was a neglected dam that gave way on a summer resort lake. A wall of water roared through a valley. It leveled several small towns and then entered the city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The death toll was 2,200 people.
0: And it also provided America with an early and hard lesson in keeping our infrastructure in good shape, huh?
7: Yeah, absolutely. And when we see crumbling bridges today and crumbling highways and coal ash impoundment dams about to give way, it's a lesson that we seem to keep learning over and over again at great cost and with great pain. As far as the Johnstown flood goes, historian David McCulloch wrote a great book about it several years ago, but it's one epic American disaster that's uh, waiting to be made into a Hollywood blockbuster.
0: Now, you said you had two damn stories.
7: Yes, sir, and please watch your mouth. In 1905, there were some workers who poked a hole in a retaining wall from an irrigation canal in Southern California, bringing water from the Colorado River to new farmland. The water filled a huge depression in the desert floor, and that became the Salton Sea. And in turn, the Salton Sea became a tourist mecca, it became a stopover for migratory birds, and it is to this day the biggest lake in the state of California.
0: Ah, so there's a Dan break story with a happy ending, huh?
7: Not entirely. The Salton Sea's water is not only very salty from the alkaline desert floor, it's become polluted with farm runoff also, and this man-made lake is the object of a major effort to save it. Uh, not too long ago, there was a Republican congressman who was spearheading that effort. That was the late Sonny Bono.
0: I imagine he would share the credit for that.
7: Oh, God. Oh, no.
0: Peter Dykster is publisher of Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org.
7: Thanks for taking the
0: time with us today, Peter.
7: All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon.
0: And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. The oldest person ever certified died in France in 1997 at age 122. The current oldest lives in Japan. She's 116. The maximum human lifespan seems to be around 120 years, while the mayfly, an aquatic insect, emerges, breeds, and dies within hours. But there are also organisms that can live for thousands of years, and these are the subject of a striking book of photographs by Rachel Sussman. A contemporary artist and photographer based in Brooklyn, Rachel Sussman spent the last 10 years traveling the globe capturing images of extremely old organisms. She joins us today to discuss the oldest living things in the world. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So what inspired you to find and photograph the world's oldest living things?
12: What's really a combination of things. You know, I've been photographing since I was little and always interested in the relationship between humanity and nature. But I was also really interested in creating a project that dealt with the sciences, as well as some philosophical thinking. This look at deep time and long-term thinking, all with a strong environmental underpinning.
0: So the book is called The Oldest Living Things in the World. What kind of things are we talking about?
12: For the most part, they are what you'd expect, a lot of plants, a lot of trees. But there's also some things you might not expect, for instance, bacteria, fungus, uh, as well as some animals.
0: Going through your book, I noticed that you said you actually never found a true longevity expert. So how did you find these different organisms?
12: So very early on I had looked for a scientist that would collaborate with me and be my partner through the project and they very quickly recused themselves and said, "Oh gosh, you know, we're not we're not expert enough for that uh, because there is no area in the sciences that deals with longevity across species." So what happened was I ended up working with individual experts.
0: How did you uh, determine the age of these organisms? Typically, I imagine you used you looked at different isotopes of carbon.
12: Certainly. Well, so this is actually a reason why (laughs) the whole concept of creating an area of study about longevity is quite complicated. And that is all these different types of organisms are dated in different ways. So the best case scenario is when you have published scientific research papers that share an exact vetted age of an organism. Um, In some cases, there are educated guesses, which are ranges. And in some cases, there's just some hearsay.
0: There's two kinds of old in here. One kind refers to single organisms. Another refers to things that are cloned. Can you explain the differences for us, please?
12: Certainly. So there are these two types generally speaking, that we're dealing with. And one is unitary organisms, and that's something that we're probably almost familiar with. Like a single tree is generally a unitary organism. So the more complex organisms are sometimes referred to as clonal or employing vegetative growth or rhizomatic. And what that means is that they're self-propagating without the introduction of new outside genetic material. So there's no sexual reproduction happening.
0: Most of your book is about plants, but the very oldest aren't. Can you tell me about this?
12: The very oldest known thing on Earth, and I say the oldest known because it doesn't mean that it is absolutely the oldest, um, is something referred to as the Siberian actinobacteria. And it does, in fact, live in Siberia. And it's between 400,000 and 600,000 years old. This bacteria was discovered by a team of planetary biologists looking for clues to life on other planets by visiting one of the harshest areas on Earth. So what they did was they took a core sample uh, deep into the permafrost and were quite surprised to discover this bacteria because what's special about it is that it's doing DNA repair below freezing. So that differentiates it from bacteria uh, found in the Arctic or Antarctic, That's been dormant.
0: I was intrigued by the photograph you have of these lichens on Greenland. How did you go about finding them?
12: So the researcher who was working with me with the Siberian actinobacteria said, hmm, oh, you're interested in things over 2,000 years old. Well, I'm going to Greenland next summer, and there are lichens over 2,000 years old, and asked if I wanted to join them. So the lichens known as the map lichens, or Rhizocarpon Geographicum. In Greenland, they grow one centimeter every hundred years. And that's one of my favorite statistics in the whole project, in that it really puts a human lifespan into perspective. I mean, what if you spent your entire life just growing one centimeter?
0: There are pictures of this seagrass in Spain that you say is some 100,000 years old. How did you get those pictures? (laughs)
12: I learned to scuba dive. So that was uh, one of my fears I actually had to face. Scuba diving was not something that ever appealed to me. So was quite fortunate that I was able to join them in the field. So I ended up going out with the researchers as they were very carefully counting these plotted areas, counting the number of shoots to look at the health of the meadow.
0: Most of these old things are They're pretty laid back, but you found one that you call predatory. What is that?
12: Yes, I mean, not that anybody should run away in alarm. Our malaria fungus is predatory, but it only attacks certain species of trees. So this is uh, also known as the humongous fungus, which some people might have heard about living in eastern Oregon. It happens to be the largest organism in the world as well, but it lives almost entirely underground, so it's a little bit tricky to photograph, as you can imagine. But what it does is it invades certain species of trees and essentially strangles them to death. But it's also pretty clever. It doesn't actually do this until the tree has met reproductive age. So it ensures that there'll be progeny for it to kill later.
0: And how old is this humongous fungus?
12: <laughs> so the humongous fungus is 2,400 years old.
0: A mere babe compared to the bacteria that goes back more than a half a million.
12: Certainly, and it's an interesting thing where you have um, a number of the younger organisms in my project tend to be the larger ones, and the ones that are the oldest tend to be growing the most slowly.
0: So what was your most memorable event and thing and why?
12: So one of my absolute favorite experiences was going to visit a plant called the Ureta in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And this is at very high elevations, around 15,000 feet. And you know, you're driving through the Atacama Desert, you know, parts of this are absolute desert where there's no recorded rainfall in all of human history. And so as you go further up uh, into the mountains, you start to get a little bit of green. And then finally, I was with a researcher who took me to this place where the uretas were growing. And the ureta looks like moss covering rocks, but it's actually a shrub, and it's incredibly dense. It also happens to be related to parsley, which I found amusing, but it's something that looks completely alien, and you're already in this really alien-looking landscape because it's so arid, but the ureta is made of thousands of these branches so densely packed together, you could actually climb on top of them. And at the end of each branch is this little cluster of leaves. Uh, And they also flower there. It's a flowering shrub and also sort of became the poster child of the project because it's something that most people aren't familiar with. I certainly was never familiar with them before beginning this
0: project. How old is the Iretta?
12: There are a number of different uretas that I photographed even. So the one primary image is probably around 3,000 years old. And then there's one that looks even bigger, but it's actually two uretas next to each other. So the estimate on that is around 2,000 years old.
0: You went back to some of the sites. What was it like going back to see those organisms again and take more pictures? And how did it change your experience of them?
12: Yeah, several of the organisms I did revisit. The most profound, I would say, was my experience with the senator tree. And it was 3,500 years old. It was a bald cypress tree in Florida. You know, I'd first visited the senator tree in 2007. And I had made some photographs that I just wasn't crazy about. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to come back. It'll be really easy. Lo and behold, five years later, the tree was dead. It was killed by some kids who snuck into the park at night and the tree was hollow in the center and they thought it would be fun to duck in there and take some drugs and they burnt it down but it really (laughs) reminded me it jolted me out of this sense just sort of, of complacency or this feeling of like oh you know these things are going to be around for so long i'm making a sort of time capsule of this moment but they'll be here for a while and in some cases that just isn't true
0: oh what went away
12: So two of them we lost, and they both were at human hands. So one was the senator tree, and the other one was something known as the underground forest in Pretoria, South Africa. Now, thankfully, it's not the only one of its kind, but this was a 13,000-year-old clonal shrub living outside the botanical garden, and it got bulldozed right over in order to accommodate a new roadway.
0: Tell me, how do these oldest living things behave as, quote, a record and celebration of the past, a call to action in the present, and a barometer of our future? And I'm quoting you.
12: Certainly, yes. I mean, I really look at these organisms as something that belong to us all and transcend the things that divide us. And, you know, they're symbolic of both a deeper time period and history that is something collective to us living on Earth, and likewise are something that we're responsible for. And I find them both to be Hopeful in terms of symbolically, their longevity is certainly something that is both surprising and admirable, but it's also hanging in the balance. So, climate change is a real and present danger, and it's something that is in the hands of all of us. So, I hope that these organisms will help to serve as something that connects us all and is transcendent of the small things that get in the way on a daily basis.
0: Rachel Sussman's new book is called The Oldest Living Things in the World. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today.
12: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: Produced by the World Media Foundation, Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Lauren Hinkle, and Jennifer Marquis all helped to make our show. We welcome Jake Lucas and Abby Nighthill to our team this week. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Liererstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes
3: from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgaard, and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
4: PRI, Public Radio International.